NZR Sports, Icarus Canopies, now Gyro. That's right, we've rebranded, and Gyro is our next generation. It honours our founder, as that's the name we knew him by, but Gyro also marks the start of a new chapter. And not to be biased, but it's going to be fucking epic. Long story short, we're more us than ever. So if you're new to the sport, or even a Sky God Ninja Turtle, welcome. I think our valiant leader Lucy, Gyro's daughter, says it best. And we still got that fuck your attitude. <laughs> Rebrand! Woo! Rebrand woo indeed, Lucy. Anyway, head over to gyro.com for more info and get amongst your legends. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I'd better sew her a new one. What a sentence, and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Hey gang, so I got a new book out. It's called The Upside of Fear, and it's exactly what you think it's about. It's about the good side of, well getting scared. In it, we talk not only about the science and biology behind fear, but the psychology as well. And it's not just coming from me, it's coming from some of the best in the sport. Omar Alhijalan, Jeff Provenzano, Maxine Tate, and so many more have contributed their sometimes terrifying stories to the book to help you overcome your fear. So head to the lunaticfringepodcast.com. You're going to find the link to the book there as well as the other books. It's available in ebook, paperback, hardback, and audiobook right now. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. Back in the can for another edition of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast. And man, oh man, I know I keep saying it because I've been lucky enough to catch up with a bunch of old friends, but holy shit, dude, who the fuck are you and what do you do? 
Hey there, Dean. My name is Nick Armstrong. Uh, I what do, what do I do? Um, I'm a, a husband, a stepdad, um, a total computer nerd, and oh, I happened to skydive for like 20 years. You know that that that's cool. Yeah, man. You know, that's the great thing is, and I've talked about it a million times on the podcast, is the diversity of backgrounds of people in skydiving and the shit that they do outside of skydiving that when you're in it, you never know about. You know, I, I don't think I knew half of what you did until after we weren't at the same drop zone. Totally, totally. It's it's easy to get to the drop zone, show up, hugs, high fives, whatever, and then immediately transition to okay, what load do you want to get on? Like, yeah. Oh, do you, I need to pack? I forgot to pack last night. Like whatever, and and just move right into the day. Absolutely. Sure. Well, and especially you and I were on a drop zone that was very much a, a tight knit group and kind of a, a family oriented uh, drop zone. You know, I mean, everybody knew everybody, and and so it was always. Hey, what's going on? Did you hear about or did you see or what the fuck was with that? <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. And it and it gave an opportunity to spend time with with some people more than others, travel together, whether it's to events or just for like social activities. Um, so, yeah, we definitely got to get to live like a, a family style drop zone, uh, which was great. But again, you know, skydiving took up like all the oxygen in the room most of the time. So, so yeah, you know, people's lifestyles are, are crazy and, and exciting and didn't always get to hear about all the, the fun things. For yeah, sure. for sure. For sure. Well, and that's one of the things that I've enjoyed so much about the podcast over the last God, almost five years now is I've been shocked so many times on the show going, you do what? <laughs> <laughs> or you're a PhD, but you're an idiot on the drop zone. Holy shit. And, you know, just blown away by all kinds of stuff. So totally. It was always great to hear about all of the lawyers and the doctors and the firefighters and the mechanics and the, and everyone's just, you know, tossing back the beers at night and hanging out roughhousing and telling stories. Um, yeah. And like de definitely takes away some of the division of like, Oh, that's the, the career you have, you, we we must not have anything in common. Like, no, that that's not the case at all. Like, yeah, at yeah. All. I think my still and without getting too much into jumping ahead, my favorite shock of anybody on Skydance was finding out that redheaded Amy was an FAA official. <laughs> yeah, and there's a fun story to find out why. We'll get we to that. Found out. Yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> but before we get to any of that, let's jump all the way back to how you got started. Not necessarily just in skydiving, but in anything extreme. Yeah, I mean, skydiving is definitely like a, a defining moment in in my life. Uh, so, so you know, w while I was raised in a family that went um, skiing and snowboarding and did that sort of thing, uh, I, I think that would maybe be like the most extreme thing I would have done as a kid. So, so then to you know graduate high school, go off to college for a year, come home and find myself bored, not knowing what I wanted to do, not enjoying college lifestyle. And then just kind of randomly, and there's a small story there, but randomly like deciding to go do a skydive to do a, a tandem skydive and get introduced to that atmosphere um, definitely changed my career decisions, my educational decisions, like <laughs> what, how much money do I need to make to pay for my next AFF jump? Like it changed um, probably everything about my late teens and for sure the next like decade or more in my life. Sure. So now yeah. where and how was that first jump? So I did my first and second tandem 
at uh, Skydance Skydiving in Yolo County, Davis, California, uh, the place where I did the majority of my jumps over the the two two decades or so. And uh, I think, you know, again, coming back to being a bored uh, college student home at, at, you know, for that first summer working to save up some money. I was watching some awesome movies from the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, and I'm sure you've heard them, right? It's like Drop Zone, Point Break. And um, uh, oh, my gosh, what's what's the what's the third here? But anyway, and and watching these people skydive and thinking um, like I, I didn't know you could just go do that. Like that's right. something you can. So anyway, so I um, schedule some uh, schedule the tandem skydive. I got some friends of mine from high school. Um, we went out, hung out at the drop zone, and it happened to be the American Boogie, right. uh, 2003. So, so sitting around the drop zone for the first time, watch it. And I thought it would just be this thing. We'd go. There's a small airplane. We go do this jump, and they've got you know twin engine aircraft and the the caravans and all this stuff going on. It's loud. It's exciting. I knew instantly before I even did my jump, like, this is amazing. I need to find a way to be in this atmosphere right. more often, for sure. I mean, that was a hell of a drop zone anyway. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And especially back when you would have gone with the American Boogie going, there was a lot of talent that was starting to work their way out there. And I mean, what Ray had been running that show for quite some time and, and not to mention the, just the airport alone, because it's an old military airfield that the runway is over a mile long, you know, I mean, it's a huge field and I would imagine for your first jump now, and where was home for you? Was it a near Roseville, like the Sacramento area? Yeah. Okay. Sure. So yeah. So you're climbing up to altitude and in free fall, you can see Sacramento. Exactly. You can see the Bay Area, you can see home, you can see everything up and down the valley for whatever, 50, 60 miles. Yep. And it's a beautiful view. I mean, it's the it's the wine country. Gorgeous. Right. Just to the west of the drop zone is Lake Berryessa. Ugh. If it's nice and clear out, it's not too foggy. You can see all the way to the Golden Gate Bridge. We'll, yep. we'll, get, we'll get back to tandems and pointing things out down, you know, out the window later. But yeah, gorgeous views. And in the spring, when there's still some snow on the mountains, you can see all the way up to Tahoe. You can see the peaks up there. So of, of all the places I've skydived, it's it's kind of rough to like have a gorgeous one in your backyard and go somewhere else and be like, oh, okay, the sure. view is here. You know, they're all right. But anyway. I always thought it was so funny because my my initial home drop zone was skydive Las Vegas. And I mean, I grew up in the same area that you did and had no fucking clue that there was skydiving there. No idea. Uh, and then, of course, to become a working skydiver in Vegas and then go all the way to the East Coast and then come home during flight school to find out there's like a proper drop zone right there. I was fucking floored. Totally. And and to find out that Northern California, you know, there were like six or seven active drop zones within like an hour or two's drive, you yeah. know, from from the Sacramento area. Lots and lots of skydiving in Northern California, smaller operations than, of course, like the Chicago land and the, the Eloy's and Paris Valley. But decent operations where, you know, you can go, you can meet a whole new group of people. They're flying, you know, single uh, uh, or twin engine airplanes. So like plenty of opportunity to to jump at really cool places. Yeah, sure. Now, what were you studying in college? 
I went to college with the grand plan of being a mechanical engineer. And, and, and certainly looking back on it, like I wish I'd put more energy just into learning. Like I, I, the older I get, the more I enjoy learning about just random stuff, but picking a topic and diving in. But at the time, you know, 17 turning 18, my, my freshman year of college at Fresno state, um, I was just bored. It was terrible. Like the, I, I wasn't into the party scene, which like I never really have been in any way, even even in the skydiving atmosphere. Like, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about health a little bit later, but I, I don't drink alcohol. I haven't done a, a tremendous amount of uh, recreational drugs over the years. So like just young and wanting to like socialize, I found myself kind of out of the mix there living in the dorms, which is weird. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking of like movies and TV stories you hear about. Um, so I didn't, I didn't fall into that side of it. School, the school stuff, again, I just didn't put enough energy into it. So my first year of college was a, a drag, which then again, having this, like this outlet, this valve to like put energy and be excited about any, almost anything else, like Scott having picked me up for sure. Sure. I mean, it kind of did the same thing for me too, because I, uh, um, wasn't interested in learning just like you and just like a lot of people that I know um, what they had to offer just didn't appeal to me whatsoever. And through various interesting careers that led me to skydiving, but I latched onto something that I for the first time had a passion for and kind of just like you, it took until I got much older that learning was something that I enjoyed doing. You know, I mean, for the first 10 years that there was a YouTube around. I hated watching it because I thought people are idiots. What are they doing? And now I'm on YouTube all the time watching Einstein's theory of this and that. It's shit that I can barely understand, but I'm so enjoying learning, which I wish I'd had as a kid. Totally. And and it's funny you say that. And I'm sure everyone knows this now, this many years into YouTube being so so world known, right? But like, the idea of jumping on and not just learning something you have, you can't conceptualize, you need someone to walk you through, learning something like auto repair or fixing a shingle on your roof because your roof leaked during the last rain, like that sort of stuff, like learning even in a small, discreet little topic is super fun. And I find myself like watching some weird video, like I'll never need to know this, but yep. learning how this thing works is amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I've crawled down the rabbit holes of watching someone making an Iron Man helmet for like an hour, but yes. I, uh, uh, my wife and I bought the house that we're in and, and decided to remodel the kitchen and we were going to do it yourself. And she's like, do you want me to help? And I'm like, I have YouTube. You should go out with your friends. And I literally used YouTube to do the entire kitchen. Now, of course, if a pro walked into my kitchen, they'd go, oh, Jesus. But there are no pros walking around, you know, measuring this shit in my kitchen. And it was something as silly as YouTube. And I really enjoyed that process of learning. And oddly enough, got just as much out of something like that as I did the learning experience with something like skydiving because I was so engaged. Absolutely. Yeah. The the engaged part and being able to step back after you've done something and look and be like, I built that thing. I put that, you know, sink in or did that tile. Like, look at that backsplash. That's amazing. And these are super like domestic items. Like, oh, you, you know, your friends come over and you show them like, hey, look at the cool work we did. Awesome. And then we go do something else. We ha- yeah. we tell stories, whatever. But you you know you did that and it was awesome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and in a similar way, skydiving is the same because it's an incredible 
incredible sense of accomplishment. So certainly, and and accomplishment that skydiving, I think, for me, uh, it, and it's going to be the 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 through line throughout any of our storytelling is the people being able to accomplish something with other people, even just on a single jump, or for sure those you know teams and then relationships that you build at the drop zone over the years. There's a sense of community and accomplishment as a group that uh, that is that uh, speaks to me because I'm not a super competitive person. So bringing together my friends or my family sure. to do something as a group is is awesome. That's amazing. So you go out and you you make your first jump. You realize because you're in the middle of the American boogie. Holy shit. This is amazing. These people are fantastic. Did you know right then and there? Did you sign up for the course right then? And how did all that go? Right. Okay. So, so yeah, this is worth telling, pausing on for a few minutes. So the American boogie, right? So I get to the drop zone. We do the whole tandem thing. They, they release us into the quad, like into the area to go sit and relax. It's hot. It's, it's California, Northern California in the summer. So we're looking for spot in the shade to hang out. And I'm with my best friend from high school, Mike, and a couple of his friend, his girlfriend and her friend, and they're all Mormon. And like no, no judgment, just, you know, making a factual statement. And so that'll make sense in just a few minutes later, we're sitting, we're talking, we're hanging out. And then here walks by like a dozen naked skydivers after, <laughs> after they had just done a midday naked jump. And I don't know if you remember tall guy, Kevin, oh, yes. he's like, like he's huge. He's a gigantic man, tall, really big. He comes by. And while others, you know, have their canopies wrapped around their waist or around their chest, you know, to like, oh, look, look, he's just got that thing slung over his shoulder, just walking happy and proud through the through the, the landing area and the packing area. And right. and I look at my friend, I'm giggling, right? Because I'm an 18 year old kid. I look at my friends and the girlfriend and her friend, they're blushing, the mom, right? Mike's mom <laughs> and dad came with us. They're like, what are we doing? Why are we here? What is going on? So... So that was like the first moment I realized like, this is crazy. Like who the fuck are these people? Huh. This is, and the other thing is, I think this is like an every Saturday thing, right? Like sure. I think that, you know, there's a couple hundred people here, there's vendors, there's food, there's all this stuff. But so I, I go and I do my first tandem. I have an awesome jump. Um, and I realized in, immediately, like in the plane, like I know this is something I want to do, watching everyone high-fiving and getting ready to do the thing and all that. I enjoy my skydive. And when I got home that weekend, uh, I it actually, it took me a while before I told my dad. The, mm -hmm. I was living at home with my dad at the time. It took me a while before I told him about doing the skydive and and then I convinced him after a couple days or a week or so to come and do a tandem with me. Awesome. So I called scheduled. He came out and did a tandem with me. Um, and that for me was really like, okay, cool. My dad did it. Like, you know, he, he's not going to learn, but he thought it was fun. And then, and then I, I called Neil one, one week uh, asking, okay, how do I get into this? And uh, Neil, the manager of Skydance, I, I think 15 or 20 years um, and he was there the the whole time you were flying there. Yeah. Um, he he must have spent forty five minutes on the phone with me, just like walking me through all the things. Right. Like this is what AFF is. This is what'll happen in the first couple jumps, and then how you progress further. And that 
his his willingness to just slow down and talk to a student and help answer all their questions that that really helped kind of seal the deal for me. Sure. Well, that was one of the things that stood out about Skydance for me when I came out there, because when I first started working for Skydance, I was working as a tandem instructor because uh, I had just started flying uh, and wasn't even flying the 182 out there at the time. I needed to build more time. And uh, um, I was struck with their desire to really pull in more AFFs and really embrace the fun jumpers and not just have it be a tandem factory, which was really cool because I had just come from the biggest tandem factory. You know, I mean, it, and it was it was really neat to see, oh, no, 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 they're really embracing the fun jumper side of it. And they're really catering to the the AFF students, which was great. Totally. And and my experience in, in AFF, I think, was pretty consistent over, over the years that followed and certainly while, while you were there, which was like, I got an instructor and that instructor took me aside and like sat me down and, and, you know, I'm, I'm talking like, it didn't feel like a machine, right? Like right. I jumped with the same AFF instructor, AB, uh, all, all of my AFF. And, and that wasn't by design necessarily. I just, he was the one who I would come out and continue to jump with. And so I felt like I had someone to coach me through those first sure. few steps um, yeah, and it was, uh, it was definitely a good way to cultivate my interest in jumping and make me feel comfortable. Like I understand what I'm doing. I understand why I'm progressing through these stages, why I may be failing some of these stages sure. and need to repeat them, which was totally okay. Sure. A great lesson to learn for later, you know? Yeah. Well, and they had a, uh, when I was there for sure, there was a really wide variety of personalities teaching AFF. Because I was one of the AFF instructors, uh, Neil was an AFF instructor and the most relaxed instructor you could ever get. I mean, talk about a low stress instructor. I was a bit more high strung than him. And then you had Perry that was super low key. Uh, you had Keith that was a little bit more by the book and a bit more firm. But so these students had the opportunity to kind of find the instructor that they gelled with and work with them, which was fucking awesome. Oh, it, absolutely. And then, you know, this giving, giving away, you know, the future a little bit, which is to say that I became an AFF instructor as well in the future. And, and so reflecting on that, being able to pick a student that, that you wanted to work with as well, mm. I think was also kind of meaningful. You know, if, if, if you do a, a category A or B and, and, the reserve side just like jives better with the student like let them take them you know they yeah. they want to go instruct them through the landing process or walk them out to the field and, and you know they're not just turning loads and jumping on to help out like let that happen and and not all students would be super blunt and say thank you but i'd like to go work with this person sure. so being able to read that student's interest and hand them in a direction that's going to be most successful to them i think was important and skydance offered that sort of environment for sure well it was also a, um, a beneficial for the student for sure that it was not an insanely busy drop zone during the week you know i mean you could have a bit more time and a bit more of a personalized experience with the instructors because it wasn't a 20 load tuesday you know it was a 
two or three load Tuesday. And, you know, you knew on a Thursday you're getting in the 182. It's That's what it's going to be. And there's going to be some tandems, but you've got time, you know, so you, you don't feel rushed, which was a really nice thing, both for the student and for the instructor as well. Like I like to be able to take as much time as I needed with my students to make sure that because I wanted them to pass the levels, you know, so. Right. You know. Right. And that and that was my experience as well. At the summer, I came home from that first year of school and and did my tandems and then started AFF. I was working uh, at my dad's metal shop from like four in the morning till about one in the afternoon because it was so damn hot in the valley. So I would leave work and immediately drive to the drop zone on like a <laughs> Thursday afternoon, yep. you know, cash my paycheck in uh, and then and then go to the drop zone and spend it all effectively. <laughs> of course. And exactly what you're saying, right? Like I knew what the weekend was like. I'd seen, you know, and, and talked with the instructors. I knew that it was busy. And the week offered me that opportunity to just like show up. There's a few people walking around. It's quiet. And it would be just my instructor and I in the plane, maybe a fun jumper who happened to be around a packer or someone who wanted to go get a jump in. But it was just the two of us. The landing area are gigantic, but it was just me. Right. I don't have to worry about anyone else. So, yeah, the, the week the weekdays were were awesome. Sure. Now, so you get through AFF there, and I assume you start fun jumping there because there was a there was a nice base of fun jumpers on the weekends that you'd be able to go out and they were very welcoming to all experience levels. Like you'd never have a problem as a lower time jumper finding someone that would go out and just do a two way with you. Yeah, absolutely. In the in the aughts, and I mean, really, the first like decade or so that I jumped, um, absolutely, you could go out and either ask to join someone skydive or someone would walk up to you, especially if you looked like you didn't know what was going on and you were jumping by yourself. Someone would come up and ask you like, hey, what are you doing? Do you want to join our jump? Or I don't have plans. Like, do you want to jump with me? You know, whatever. So it it was certainly, it certainly gave that, that sort of like family appeal that, um, you could also just sit back and like watch what other people were doing or sit down and, and talk with them about their skydive. Like, oh, what'd you guys do? So uh, a lot of open conversations just around, you know, like what the sport is and what you want to get out of it. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. It was definitely a welcoming environment. I, I got there chucking drogues in, I want to say 2006. The um, Yeah, the... the um, in the season in 2006 and i i hadn't been introduced to anybody i had met ray somehow bullied him into giving me a job uh and i'm sure ray is listening to this i called him an asshole basically and he laughed because he's like <laughs> all right dude you got some balls of here." um and um i started doing tandems there and nobody knew me i'd not been introduced to anybody but a couple of people that i was jumping with and i landed in the pee pit uh on the weekend and fun jumpers were just starting to show up. And um, for modesty's sake, I won't say her name, but one of the regular uh, fun jumpers out there, she uh, recognized that I was a new person and went, oh, hi, I haven't flashed you yet. And fl <laughs> flashed me, went, welcome. And I went, hello. Oh, I am at a drop zone. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that was like one of my first big memories of that. That and then the first um staff meeting we had. That was another pretty fucking fun one. 
because Ray Ray always had interesting staff member meetings. Now, so you fun jumped there, but when did you start working? Like, did you get tandem rating, AFF rating? How did all that go? Yeah, I uh, I can't remember exactly when, maybe a year or so into jumping, just, just paying for my skydives, fun jumping, buying used, gear, like old ratty used gear too, mm-hmm. right? Like doing everything I could to scrounge up uh, the, the cash to kind of stay moving in the sport. And then um, the guys from Kaleidoscope, uh, a four-way belly team, a uh, relative work team there at Skydance. Uh, we got Matt, Colin, the g- gyms, two two Matts, two gyms, Colin, Carl, these awesome guys. Um, Jim Matthews, who who we <laughs> both know and love. Um, and he he was always injuring himself one way or another, right? And on one of his down times, um, Matt or or Colin came over to me and said, hey, Nick, we know you've got a camera. Would you mind coming along and filming our four-way? And and that was really like my my sort of jumping off point where they were willing to deal with my shitty camera uh, camera skills for the first few jumps. And then, you know, quickly giving me uh, uh, feedback and saying like, OK, don't do this, do this, whatever. And so they helped kind of like bring me along into like a more active, aggressive skydiving uh, experience. So I did a ton of camera jumps for them that season. I don't remember if it was that year or the following, but I went to nationals either as like a backup jumper and packer or whatever. Like I, I went to nationals maybe four or five times with that same group. Sure. Um, and so getting a bunch of video jumps with them meant that all of a sudden, like I was also interested in and had skills to do video yep. for tandem skydiving and skydance uh, did a lot of outside video in the mid to late 2000s. Uh, not so much hand cam. So lots of outside video eventually found myself into a full time weekend slot at the drop zone. Again, to your point, like it wasn't super busy during the week. So the weekend is where everyone came together. Um, so I, I did a, a couple thousand, I think, uh, AFF and tandem video jumps over those first few years. Um and then probably in like 2007, 2008, I'd have to look back at my logbook. I said, I want to become a tandem instructor against <laughs> all recommendations from everyone I've spoken. No, I'm just kidding. So I, yeah, I got my, I got my tandem rating uh, through Ray at Skydance. Uh, got to do my, my evaluation jump with him and get yelled at for not doing it just the right way or getting unstable <laughs> enough or covering too quickly. Cause I'm six, three and have gigantic arms and legs and nope, yep. we got to flip over my- anyway. So I got my tandem rating. And then uh, a few years later, so probably in like the early teens, I got my AFF rating. Um, yeah. Well, and, you and ended my, up. And my, yeah. Mm-hmm. Go for it. I, I can't even count how many times you flew in front of me shooting Tana video. I mean, yeah. And and it was funny because you were really busy as a camera flyer, both shooting video when I was still doing tandems, and then as I transitioned into the pilot. So I have. Um, I probably I'm gone. God knows how many of your videos, um, over the years, either as a tandem instructor or as the pilot. 
Like, yeah, I used to I used to like uh, wait until everything started to materialize on the ground and I knew where we were all going to go. And I would like beg my tandem instructor to get in first to be the last one out because <laughs> you were a rather aggressive pilot. <clears throat> if I'll just say it that way. And so if we were the last <laughs> tandem leaving, right, I would like leave a little low or early and like really get underneath the tandem and look up and see you with the pack 750. <laughs> coming over uh, you know working your way back down like we gotta, of course. We gotta turn those loads quickly right of course so i yes you are on countless tandem video shots silhouetted in the <laughs> pilot seat looking out the window <laughs> as your tandem and your videographer falling away yes yeah. absolutely or yeah. just yelling at you looking up the fuselage being like bye d <laughs> and then climbing out you know i uh, yeah. um i'll never forget um, and I didn't know it at the time, but it was Amy, who, of course, everyone later found out worked for the FAA, had taken it because she shot video as well. Um, and she had one day left a, a CD on the pilot's desk in my office um, in a uh, in labeled Dean's Mad Pilot Skills on the desk. But she put it there before the end of the day. So, of course, I was not the one to get to that disc. So at the end of the day, I get called in by Ray uh, to his office. And Ray shows me this disc. He's all, have you seen this? And I read Dean's Mad Pilot Skills. And I'm like, no. And he puts it in his computer and he pulls it up. And it's just this series of photos of me in what appears to be a rather steep dive behind a tandem and to raise credit and I'll, I'll hats off to him forever for this. He's like, you got the pictures now. Right. And I'm like, yeah, he's all, you don't need to do that again. Do you? And I'm like, no. And he <laughs> takes a CD out, puts it in the case, hands it to me and says, have a nice night. <laughs> uh huh. But then the double whammy was, I think it was probably almost a year later, and we'll talk about it, the incident where everybody found out that Amy worked for the FAA. I'm like, a Fed handed me those pictures? <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. But you you know, you know, Ray, you know, Ray said that to you. And then he went and he did his books that next week. And he was like, man, Dean's turn times are just epic. So I don't I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I won't be so hard on him. Well, Ray's a pragmatist, right? He's like, look, the wings are still attached. Uh, he's fucking turning like a madman. He changed a tire and a skirt. I'm gonna I'm gonna let him keep <laughs> flying. Yeah, for sure. So you are still full blown into the video stuff when you and I had what was one of my funnest and most infuriating events ever on a drop zone, which was the Mythbuster shoot. I was just looking this up before we started potting today. The airplane hour. Yes. With with Carrie. And and that team, yeah, that was that was so much fun. Why don't why don't you why don't you set us up for folks either who don't remember Mythbusters or didn't watch that episode? Well, and this is kind of full circle for both you and I because we were both um, skydiving the, of the skydiving generation that got started partially because we were inspired by the movie Point Break. So 
we find out that Mythbusters wants to come to Skydance because they want to break the so-called myths that Point Break made, which was you can have a 45-second free fall from 4,000 feet. You can talk to each other in free fall, and you can catch someone if you leave a plane 15 seconds after them. Well, I think you shot video for one of those two tandems, and then you were the one that tried to demonstrate whether or not you could catch someone after 15 <clears throat> seconds leaving. Well, so they they did the 45-second free fall by chucking Buster, their crash test dummy, out at 4,000 feet and just letting him go in. Um destroying that myth um and there's a side story to that that we'll get to and then the one that you did was the 15 second one and tell me about that yeah so so uh i'm i'm supposed to be the keanu reeves character standing in the plane and you are my uh what no what what did they call you I think the tandem buddy tandem, you were tandem buddy motherfucker I yeah was i was tandem catch, buddy i was catch up skydiver right yep. And so you're Patrick Swayze, you're sitting in the door with your tandem student, ready, set, go. And as soon as you leave the airplane, Carrie, one of the staff members on the show, she's sitting at the end of the bench and she starts a, a stopwatch. And she looks at me and when it reached whatever the time was, 15 seconds or something, she says, go. And I dove out the door and um, the video that we had a videographer, I, I think Dan Blakely followed me. Yep. And my goal was just that to catch up to you guys during your skydive. And granted, we went to, I think, 13,000 feet, kind of a standard Damn. altitude at, at that drop zone. So I spent the majority of the skydive on my head, arms to my side, feet pointed, just trying to reduce arrow, you know, uh, uh, breaking ra rather. And when the skydive was over, I'm pretty sure my digital altimeter said I read like 300 miles an hour for a period of time. <laughs> and maybe that was because it was in my burble. Who knows? We'll, we'll see. But just at the end of the skydive, right before you and Grant, I think it was, who were, it was. Who were doing the jump together, just before or as you guys are deploying the canopy, you can see they pause the video frame and there I am with my arms out, legs out, slowing down as much as I possibly can. And I think they considered it like plausible. We broke the myth. It's like, you know, it's yeah. ca you're capable of catching up if you leave the plane that long ago. And for yeah. some, that might not even be much of an accomplishment, right? I'm sure there's others out there who are like, oh, I could do that in my sleep, but whatever, you know, oh, no, it, was it was super fun. It was cool as fuck. And, and the only, the reason that it was frustrating for me was, well, for everybody, because we waited three quarters of the day because we had low cloud cover. Um, so they decided let's at least do the buster part of the myth because it looked like the ceiling was at about 5,000. So the pilot takes off and, and goes up to 4,000 and we're out in the landing area. And I forget what exactly was being told, but the producer for the show was barking orders like she actually knew what was going on and she had no clue what was going on. And Carrie um, happened to be standing near me with the radio when she was barking orders. And I said something along the lines of that bitch needs to calm the fuck down because she's completely full of shit and she needs to stop ordering me or I'm walking. Well, apparently that made it back to the producer, which I knew nothing about. 
until that episode aired and they had done an interview with Dan and even had me because I was on camera quite a bit. I think I was on camera more than any of the other staff. Uh, and they refused to use my name. <laughs> they just called me Tandem Buddy because the producer found out I called her a bitch. <laughs> yeah, I mean that 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 tracks that tracks with you over the years. But you know, yeah, you, that you, still, might... you still got to show that that pretty face in video. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that that's that might have been on brand for me at the time, maybe. Maybe, but it was still really, really fun. That, and I was a big fan of the show at the time, and everybody that I knew had a crush on Carrie, so getting to hang out with that whole crew and all that was just a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yeah, they were they were super welcoming. Like no one on the show seemed to take, you know, their their like Hollywood producing atmosphere and turn that into, you know, anything other than just asking, they were all super curious, right? Like that's what that show was. How do we break things? How do we make stuff work? So they wanted to know everything. They wanted to walk around in the in the airplane and in the hangar and look at the parachutes and all that stuff. So I think they probably thought they were lucky that they got to come out and do skydives with us. Sure. And meanwhile, we're like, oh my God, it's the Mythbusters crew. They're here at the drop zone. This is amazing. Oh yeah, yeah I still- fun day. I still have my Mythbusters t-shirt all these years later. I mm -hmm. still have it. So we were lucky enough to be of the Skydance generation that got to hang out with Jim Matthews, who to this day goes down as the most injured, yet most entertaining, happy fucking guy I've ever met. He was just beyond crazy as well. Were you there for the um, airport beacon? Or so I wasn't. I I listened to your episode with Jim a few years ago, and I was around the drop zone in in those days. But I think I might have even like been at the double wide sleeping that night. But I was not there, so I don't have firsthand accounting of it. It it, it is going to be a bit of a legend, a bit of a myth. Because oh, the yeah. number of people who saw it are sort of like dwindling over the years, you know? <laughs> well, so you sent me a bunch of pictures um, just a couple of days ago, one of which was um, a uh, socket wrench through a fucking <laughs> tire that Jim, okay. had, Jim had somehow managed to do. And it's so <laughs> funny that you would just naturally assume if anyone is going to get a socket wrench stuck through a fucking car tire, it would be Jim Matthews. Well, J Jim was crazy on all sorts of levels. Like he, he would, yes, he got injured a bunch, but he loved skydiving. He was like everyone's brother, uncle, dad. Like he kind of played this, this weird parental role, uh, making fun, you know, playing around, getting drunk, like, like being crazy himself. Um, so he wasn't just sitting back watching, you know, from a distance. And he was also like MacGyver. Right. He could fix anything. You give him a paper clip and a little piece of scotch tape and he'll make your like camera work for the, the rest of the day till he can order the part and fix it. Um, so it was very strange for me to to be at the drop zone and, and Jim shows up and he didn't 
he showed up. I think he either drove um, the last few miles with a flat tire or got it towed. I can't remember. But he, but he shows up. He takes the tire off his SUV, and there's a bunch of us sitting around in the in the parking lot of the drop zone taking photos. This isn't like a small socket wrench you would have to like put your IKEA furniture together. This is like a three quarter inch drive, gigantic socket wrench. It's probably you know ten inches long. And it went through the sidewall out the, like, this is impossible. I don't know how you would do this unless you set it up. But anyway, uh, just crazy. And there's like a half a dozen of us all standing around the, the tire taking photos with our mouths <laughs> right. agape. Yours as well. You're like, I don't understand how this is physically possible. Yeah, you sent me a picture of me literally looking at it going, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> now, were you there for the um, PLF off the top of the hangar? No, that was what. Uh, no, that happened at night. Yeah, that's also like a legendary story. Yeah. Um, a, 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 gen a gentleman who uh, decided that that the best way or, or an appropriate way to practice his student landings and PLF was to get on a high spot in the drop zone and jump and practice like into the gravel around yeah. that hangar yeah. and wrecked himself pretty yeah hard. he pl'd off a 25 foot quonset hut onto gravel yeah yeah <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend no 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 i absolutely wouldn't i mean there were so many fun things like that that uh, fun it wasn't fun for him but <laughs> funny things like that and then jim of course was such a uh, uh an amazing host like the uh, uh the evenings of at the double wide that would happen were you there for the last episode of uh sopranos uh yes i was yes oh I was. my god yes M still one of the most shockingly horrifying memories of my life is not the fact that that ep that episode ended so drastically and shocked us all but it was hearing Ryan laughing his ass off because he wasn't a Sopranos fan and he thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And neither was I. So, so I'm also, you know, like you just show up at the double wide, the door opens and closes every 10 minutes, someone's coming and going. And so I don't know what's going on either. And uh, yeah, silly, silly stories for sure. Yeah. The, du yeah. the double wide, the double wide was amazing. Well, just yeah. some of the the wonderful cast of characters that we had out there. A another one, one of my favorites, of course, one of everybody's favorites was Donnie Brown. Who, I mean, there just aren't enough good things to say about Donnie Brown. He was such an amazing guy uh, and probably one of the most welcoming people in the entire sport. Yeah, Donnie Brown was one of those characters whose smile... I think the cliche goes like could light up a room, you know, yeah. or whose voice could light up a room. Like he, it didn't matter what was going on in his life or other others, you know, he wanted to give you a hug and he had these like big red rosy cheeks when he was all like excited from a jump. Like Always. Yeah, Donnie Brown was an so, amazing human being. What I'll show you, um, people won't be able to see it obviously on the auto uh, uh, audio, but you'll be able to see this. I still have this from his memorial. Such a ridiculously amazing guy. And I remember being um, blown away at just how much um, he was loved when I went to the memorial in the hangar. And it was a hangar on Yolo County, massive hangar in Yolo County. And it was filled to capacity 
with people from everywhere coming to to sing Donnie Brown's praises, which was amazing. Right. And and anyone outside of the Scott Evan community who was close to him knew how important jumping was to him, knew how important his his time spent at the drop zone and his his relationships with his skydiving friends were to your point like a lot of the people there i didn't recognize because they were friends and family and co-workers and colleagues and random people he had you know met and interacted with over the years and then of course the the byron love crew mm. and skydance and anywhere he went you know all of the skydiving operations in the area knew donnie brown um yeah, it was uh, it was the coming together of I think more people for us for a skydiving related event than than I'd ever seen before. Um, and of course, it was sad that it was for for his memorial, but uh, it was meaningful. Oh, sure. dude, it was it was heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time, right? Because I I actually took uh, I I was lucky enough to have enough time off, and I uh, was flying for an airline in the Caribbean at the time, and was able to jump seat from the Caribbean. So I came out from St. Croix to be able to go. And I was so thrilled when I got there that it was just packed to the gills. And I remember talking to so many people that weren't skydivers that expressed how blown away they were by the skydiving community. They're like, I, I mean, it's Donnie. Yeah, but holy shit, this is amazing. The the love that's being sent that way. And, and it was, it was really a, probably one of the coolest most memorable experiences certainly at skydance right for for that many people <clears throat> to see the the love and the the coming together around donnie you know of uh, yeah it's it's kind of crazy that some some of our relationships are not like hidden away but skydiving for a lot of people i think is just this thing we do over here and then there's the rest of our lives there's our work sure. and and family and and otherwise and so for for you know his coworkers or his direct family to see how important he was to the lives of so many other people i'm sure was moving for them in a time when losing him was devastating oh yeah, yeah yeah you know i was i was very lucky in that i got to see donnie both uh in his skydiving persona but i got to see him in his real life as well when he pulled my ass out of the fire and painted a wingtip for me and I've still got the picture and it's probably uh, uh, one of my favorite pictures ever taken because he had been painting this wingtip to match the key color match the the paint exactly the way it was supposed to be. And then he almost as a throwaway joke said, this would be amazing if it had like ghost flames on it. And I'm like, do it. You have to do it. He's all, it would be on the top. So nobody'd be able to see it. And so I have this picture of him as he's outlining these ghost flames with the epitome of a Donnie Brown smile. Cause he is so fucking pleased with himself <laughs> as he's not only saving my ass and helping out a friend, but doing this sneaky fucking thing on top of it. And of course he was an incredibly talented painter as well. So <laughs> yeah. That's I'm, I'm, pr I'm pretty sure I got to see your face before the paint when, when the incident had happened and you were like, Oh fuck. Like this is a, this is a big deal. Like I, I'm in charge of this aircraft and this is a problem. And then the after when it was like, poof, nothing happened. It's all 
good. Don't worry about it. But we all know that flame is up there. It's up uh-huh. there. It's up yep. there. Well, the, the funny thing was uh, I get to uh, actively blame this on somebody else, too, because because he's dead as well. So I get to blame him. It was all Zach's fault. It was all Zach's fault because the motherfucker didn't tell me to stop before the hangar. And so I ding the wingtip. But the best part about it was within a 24 hour period, I glassed and sanded and prepped this wingtip. And then Donnie painted it a few hours after I finished. And I raced back to the airport and put the wingtip on. And I'm literally putting the last screw in as the FAA local FISDO guy pulls up and goes, I hear there was an incident. And I'm like, no, nah, we were just pushing the plane back and kind of dinged it. But I'm just buffing it out now. And he's all, okay, and left. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that would have been a gigantic pain. The airplane was in from out of town, right? Oh, like yeah. It was there on lease or, or an event. So if something had happened, it would have paperwork and time and money, like all that stuff. And between your willingness to move and Donnie's just friendship and his like, oh, I can put my hands on this and solve this problem. You guys took care of it overnight. Oh, dude, he saved my ass. Well, and then he he did one other thing that he did that was amazing for me is I had my old camera helmet. I'd stopped shooting video. Um, uh, where actually, when I was at Skydance, I'd stopped shooting video. And so I had my camera helmet that was, I mean, 15 years old at the time and dinged up. But I love this helmet. And I handed it to Donnie and said, hey, you know, can I pay you to just put a black coat on this and some clear coat? And he's like, I'll take care of it for you. No problem. And he had it for a month and then another month goes by and I almost kind of forgot about it. And then I come back and and somebody's saying, oh, oh, Donnie's super excited to see you. Like he's he put something in your office and I walk in and he had custom painted the living shit out of my camera helmet. And I was ready to burst into tears. I'm like, dude, you you already did these amazing. Oh, come on. This is ridiculous. It was so fucking cool. So. Yeah. And. And, and that's, and that's the same sort of energy and passion he put into like every relationship with everybody. Right. So yeah, if, if you, if you had the opportunity to know Donnie Brown and to jump with him or just hang out with him at the drop zone, um, that was special. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now I wanted to talk to you about, um, throughout your skydiving career, you've had to deal with, um, having to work through and jump through medical conditions like diabetes, which I, I didn't even realize for the longest time that you had an issue until I saw your insulin pump one day. Um, and I think I even asked you about it then and how does this work? How do you get a medical? But for anybody that's listening that like is thinking about getting into skydiving and they have diabetes and they're concerned about whether or not it's workable with the sport, how did it go for you? Yeah. So, so the long story short is I was diagnosed with type one diabetes when I was 12. Uh, so as in like the late nineties. And mm. so for those who don't know, diabetes, either type one or type two is just an inability to control your blood glucose. Mm. And for people who have type one, my body does not produce insulin and it will not control blood sugar on, on its own. Right. Mm. So every time I eat, my blood sugar goes up every time I exercise or take insulin, my blood sugar comes down. And like the, the math and the mechanics are super simple. 
but diabetes type one, especially is relentless. It mm. is on you. You have to be on 24 seven and either paying attention to or dealing with the effects of not paying attention to your diabetes. Right. Sure. So, so, and then, and then because I got a tandem rating, I can talk about that briefly as well, but for, for just the fun jumping aspect, a lot has changed in diabetes management over the last like 20 or so years that, that I've been diagnosed, which is to say we didn't have insulin pumps about 15 years ago, you know, uh, before that, uh, blood sugar monitors were big and clunky. Um, and now, and, and in fact, I know no one will see in the video, but on the back of my arm, I've got this little device. It's about the, the size of a quarter, a little, a little thicker than that. It's a constant glucose monitor. So it measures my blood sugar all day long. It sends the data to my phone or, and, or to my insulin pump. So just a lot has changed. Like mm. the fact that you hold this amazing cell phone in your pocket every day, that technology, the batteries and the computing have all gone into medical devices and diabetes being, being a, a benefactor of that. So, um, so as a fun jumper, I say it's probably easier now than ever to participate in skydiving, mm. especially if you use an insulin pump. Uh, they're easy to just store in your jumpsuit, take with you or put them on suspend and leave them on the ground. Um, and maybe maybe a piece of advice, I'd say, not jumping down the, the road too much, is if you have type 1 diabetes, like tell the people at the drop zone. So you should definitely inform the drop zone when you go. Even if you do a tandem, you know, I don't know how many uh, uh, pre-first pre tandem jumpers we have on the podcast as listeners, but if you do a tandem, let them know you're type 1 diabetic. But if you're going to be an AFF student or you're a newer jumper, let the staff members know and then just tell the people you jump with. Because like everyone responds differently to having low blood sugar in particular. That's that's where like you start to make poor decisions and mm. you're not like on your game. You're cognitively not as as collected. And if your friends and the staff can see that you're behaving odd, you know, you're look, you look a little lost or you're stumbling over your words while you're trying to manifest for your jump. They have the opportunity to say, Hey, like pause for a moment. Did you check your blood sugar? Do you need a snack? We've got, you know, a soda over here or whatever. Right. So, so the technology is super um, accommodating these days. And I think the more that people are aware of diabetes in, in the population, like it, there's no stigma to it. Right. Sure. It's just, I, I have diabetes. Like I was yeah, diagnosed yeah. with that and, and it's, it's easier to manage now than ever before. Well, I remember um, thinking, cause I knew, I knew it when I was just jumping with you. And then I started flying the 172 and didn't think about about it much but in the pack 750 i remember i started taking my lunches because ray would beat me like a fucking dog um and i'd always have snacks and a lunch pail in the plane and i remember always thinking oh it's good that i've got this because i know i have at least one diabetic on the plane so if nick ever has a problem my lunch pail's right here so if he needs something he can grab this or take a sip of that or whatever and it really it it, it implanted in me that idea especially as a pilot to know what's going on at least with the jump staff so that whatever i can help with i can do so telling people is a big thing yeah and and of i 
you know, I don't know all the conditions, health conditions that are out there, but for sure being a diabetic, like it is one that, um, again, if you're not on top of and your blood sugar starts to drop during an activity where you're burning calories, you're excited, and then you need to jump out of a plane and like make decisions, deploy parachutes and whatever yeah. and land, land. Um, it's really important. So, and luckily, you know, with all of that, it's easy enough to stash, you know, some power blocks or some gummies or whatever in your jumpsuit. So if you realize your blood sugar is low, you can just eat something on the ride up. Like, um, the number of times where diabetes has impacted my day to day while skydiving is actually pretty low, mm. but it's the, but it's the consequence level. If sure. you have a diabetic seizure, that that is the problem right oh yeah absolutely well it's that's the benefit to planning ahead and and hoping for the best but expecting the worst you know i mean it takes ne next to nothing to have a stash in your jumpsuit but not having it there is what is the true cost totally and not and again you know letting people know like when you had food up there if i hadn't brought something i could just tap you on the shoulder and say hey dean can i have your the banana or the power bar that's in your your lunch pail and you wouldn't think twice about it you just no. hand it to me and i bring you something later to make up for it or whatever like you didn't care you know whatever nick obviously needs it more than i do and he sure. forgot it he sure. forgot his snack so no big sure. deal Speaking of food, that actually reminds me of something you may not remember at all, but it is still one of my fonder memories of Skydance. Um, you'll remember that um, I'd fly, obviously, the Pac-750 single engine, and we would hot fuel. Uh, and because it was just me, I'd park the plane next to the fuel pump, feather the prop, but leave the engine running, and then I'd run out and fill up the tank. Well, most of the time I was able to hold my bladder um, until it was time to fuel. And then people just knew not to come to me when I was fueling the plane because I had to take a piss. But this particular day, I forget why I just wasn't I, I hadn't matched up the fuel stop thing and I had to pee bad. And I happened to have um, a Gatorade bottle in the plane which I put to use and then I land and I get out to fuel and you happen to be, you were yelling something to me. I think you had a question or something along the lines as I was fueling and I just finished fueling and I yelled back to you. I'm like, Hey, what color do yellow and blue make? And you stood there for a second you thought about it and you said green. And then I heaved you <laughs> a bottle, <laughs> a bottle of, <laughs> partially mixed Gatorade that was blue at one point and <laughs> yeah and it took me a minute like I don't remember if I caught it or if I scrambled to get you it caught it now it's in now it's in yeah exactly and I'm like oh and it's fucking warm too like what an asshole like I don't need this I don't need this in my hand oh my yeah. god dude oh I I think I must have laughed hard for a solid five minutes on that that was so entertaining hey, that's that's not the only uh experience I have either being around you or watching you have to pee in a Gatorade bottle we we took a road trip once to Vegas oh, yes. when you were doing an interview for the indoor tunnel that was there 
for for many years and i'm like i'm sitting in the passenger seat and i look over we're at the gas station and i'm like what is dean doing he's like leaning against the get and then all of a sudden i realize that he's peeing in a gatorade bottle it's like you could have gone inside in the same amount of time you lazy ass <laughs> i was so used to just peeing as a convenience to get it done quickly by that time <laughs> <laughs> it's like three o'clock in the morning no one's watching it's yeah man i guess just get that shit done man be fast and efficient go 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now i know you've taken a break from skydiving for a while but you and i both talk pre-podcast that we're we're starting to feel that itch again uh to get back in the air so it's been a while it's been a couple of years for you yeah yeah so so covid hit and and it was basically covid related and then i don't know 18 months or so in um vaccines were were popping off everyone was feeling pretty comfortable to kind of get back into life and i i thought hey covid's over um i'm going to participate in a clinical trial that i've been looking at for many years at a at a local teaching hospital in the area um for my type 1 diabetes which involved this is crazy. Uh, implanting these small plastic pouches that have stem cells along the skin on your abdomen. And the goal is to have those cells grow and start producing insulin, mm. kind of like a, a, um, an external pancreas, right. Okay. Or, or a, a donated pancreas. So part of that clinical trial included immunosuppressants, just like someone who gets a kidney transplant, uh, they have to take medication so their body doesn't reject the tissue that they now have inside them. So I started that clinical trial and then immediately Delta and Omicron picked back up and COVID has remained, as we all know, you know, in various ways. And so I, I avoided most things, crowds, uh, and like the drop zone has a lot of like young people <laughs> who maybe aren't vaccinated or were sitting in a small aircraft together, breathing each other's breath for 15 minutes. So it's been a contributing factor to why I've stepped away. Um, and my immune system is back on the mend and yes, I'm, I'm getting the itch to, to get back in the air for sure. So what you're saying is drop zones are the kind of place where people will casually pee into bottles and, <laughs> and and share and share respiratory viruses around the holidays. No big deal. Yeah. 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 We have been known to share, which brings me to one last memory was uh, um, one of Ray's Christmas parties where he asked who in the room had ever broken rule six. Do you remember that rule Ooh, six? Be- I- Rule no, six. What, what remind me? What's rule six? Rule six is you can't mess around um, with any of the the jumper or the students on the drop zone. And he asked that question, and of course, everybody had held up their hand. <laughs> See, I learned it as rule number five when I took Keith Wyatt's coaching course. So, so I, I was like, "Ooh, that that must be the the neighbor of the beast there." But yes, I'm I'm familiar with rule number five. I can, it, yeah. I can happily say, you know, I I didn't break it. Uh, so maybe I'm a bit of a stooge that way. But whatever. It must have been rule five because and. Uh, my first meeting, my first staff meeting, I'd only been there for like a week and didn't know half of the people. And I had been so bold with Ray. I'm like, well, fuck it. I might as well just keep going and just be me. And and Ray was telling everybody in that meeting, rule number five, and, uh, you know, dating students, blah, 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 blah. And I hold up my hand and he's like, yeah, Dean. And I'm like, the sex count is dating. <laughs> 
Oops. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Luck, luckily, I'm sure, I'm sure he had. I'm sure he had something quick to respond, or just looked at you in a way where you're like, "Ooh, that's oh, gonna just, come back later." Yeah, he just gave me a ray look. He uh-huh. just gave me a ray uh-huh. look. Now, all that being said, all these years later, and I've told him I fucking love Ray to death. He was a huge pain in the ass and uh, uh, a real stickler. And if it wasn't Ray's way, you were gonna get some shit. But I still love him for it. I mean, he, uh, especially looking back, I got the opportunity of lifetimes you know from him and and uh, um i i love how grumpy he was back then because i am at least that grumpy now absolutely and, and i got i got my riggers ticket from ray i got my tandem uh evaluator you know my, my tandem rating from ray so i was uh one of his students for in several ways and like would just be on the drop zone participating in the operation and he would come over and you know uh, put put the student's harness on this particular way or or you know don't do this when you're landing or whatever and um yeah i loved ray's grumpiness especially looking back to the uh, ray sold skydance skydiving i think about six or seven years ago eight Something years like ago that. now yeah yeah and um you know just different owners different operators and you reflect on that and and it's like uh you don't you don't know how what what you had until it's gone right? sure yeah absolutely yeah. well and i've kept up with him and and uh, i think he's just now uh getting rid of uh his last uh dip in the sport which was the the aircraft he's selling those off and going into full retirement um but I mean, my Lord, he's been in the sport for a very, very long time and made a hell of a mark and, and uh, again, gave opportunities to a bunch of assholes like me that otherwise would have never gotten where I did. So, um, yeah, he's I, one he's one of those people where you can go almost anywhere, certainly a, a decade ago and mention his name in co- conversation or say where you can. Oh, you jumped at Skydance. So you you knew Ray Farrell like, oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden other <laughs> stories, you you know, when he was flying or operating or jumping somewhere else, those stories would come out and you're like, oh, interesting. I might want to put that one in my pocket to bring out later when I see Ray, you know, oh, yeah. or just or just running into him at another drop zone. Uh, oh, yeah. It's always great. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I had a blast catching up with him on the podcast. So for any anybody that wants to hear more uh, uh, Ray stories, if you don't know him or, or you want a little bit more dirt, just pull up his episode on the podcast. We had a bit of fun on that. Now, uh, because you've been out for a while, um, I always ask for advice towards the end of most of the podcasts. What advice do you have to people like you that have taken some time off and they're thinking about getting back in? What do you think they should be uh, uh, having in mind? Or for those that are maybe thinking about taking a break, what advice can you give to them? Yeah, I was thinking about this uh, to to your point, right? I'm someone who is on a break or is taking a break or, or took a break. So, um, you know, I think my advice is... is is almost to like embrace the break a little bit and in that um, skydiving is amazing and I'll always be a skydiver. I will almost certainly return to skydiving probably sooner than later and continue to participate in the sport. I probably won't do tandems again. Uh, That was the other thing about being diabetic. You can be a tandem instructor, but you have to go, you have to jump through crazy hoops with your medical to get that and maintain it every year. It's a huge pain in the ass, but anyway, um, but I'll be an AFF instructor again. I'm, I'm pretty sure. So just thinking back on these last few years, um, uh, I, I think for me, skydiving has always been about people, right. Mm. Uh, cultivating, creating new relationships. 
introducing yourself to the new jumper on the drop zone and being like, Hey, what are you doing? Right? Like, can we go jump together? Uh, so I really value and have, and Valerie and I, my wife, we have maintained our relationships with those people in the sport who we spent the most time with. We really enjoy being around. So I'd say if you take a step away from skydiving, maybe like explicitly spend some time to, to, um, or dedicate some time to maintaining those relationships. I think it's easy, right? If you don't see those people on a regular basis, especially the ones who you kind of gravitated to, it's like, hang out with them, go, go do things, do things off the drop zone too. That's another thing, right? Cause maybe someone gets injured or maybe they have to step away or, or finances are a problem. And all of a sudden you sort of like lose this thread with this person you enjoy spending time with. Um, so for whatever your scenario is, uh, try to maintain some of those relationships Nice. and then, and again, skydiving will be there in the future. Like it don't let skydiving be the only thing you identify with as tough as that is to say, cause that's all I did for almost 20 years. Um, we've gotten into rock climbing and, and, uh, road cycling to stay busy and active. Like there's other stuff to do, um, you know, and, sure. and skydiving will, will always be there. Sure. Well, and the the one thing that I've learned specifically because of this podcast is no matter how long you go without talking to someone that you had a connection with throughout your time in skydiving, as soon as you're back like we are face to face, it's right back there. Man, I could have seen you yesterday. You know, and yeah. we would have been talking the same way about the same shit and the same stories and the same people. And it it's um it's always very comforting to talk to someone in the sport that you haven't talked to in a while because it's a bit of coming home, right? You know, I mean, as far as I'm concerned right now, you and I are back in skydance because I just spent the last hour, you know, reliving all the shit that we got to do there. And it was the same vibe. And so it's super cool to know that um, even if you have stepped out of it, even for a long time, there's still people out there that you'll connect with instantly. Absolutely. And like, just, you know, it, remembering some of those moments and the people who you haven't seen in a while, like just, just this conversation alone makes me think, man, what is, what is so-and-so doing? Or you yes. know, like, oh, I, I know, I know they moved out to like Texas or Florida. Like, what are they up to? You know, I should reach out. Sure. And, yeah. Absolutely. Well, and, and uh, another huge benefit too, is that um, I, both you and I have a, a lot of similar friends that have passed that conversations like this bring back huge positive memories. It's not a negative thing at all. You know, I mean, it's very easy to dwell on being sad that someone's gone. But every time I talk to a fellow skydiver that was close with someone that's gone, it's never a negative conversation. It's always fucking laughs. And oh, my God, do you remember when he or she did this or that or the other thing? And it's always just a, a great a great remembrance of that person. So even the negative isn't negative. Right. Yeah. Like thinking back about something, you know, an experience I had with Donnie Brown, right? Like tracking together for sunset jumps or whatever. Like I can think of those things or certainly stuff off the drop zone, but, but together talking about something around Donnie Brown with you, like really makes that conversation more rich. I think about the, the community that was involved in those moments and not just, you know, the way I remember. And yeah, it's, uh, 
Again, cultivating those relationships. You know, we'll have dinner with some skydiving friends who we haven't jumped with in years or we haven't seen maybe in six months. And this sort of stuff happens, right? We talk <laughs> about the story. We talk about Ray and we talk about our, our friends. We talk about going to nationals, whatever. And um, yeah, it helps to relive those moments, good or bad, and yeah. keep them keep them top of mind. Yeah, well, and those those quick, hey, we're just going to grab a quick bite to eat turns into the six or seven hour evening with a few too many drinks and great stories. And, you know, you just kind of fall back into it. Absolutely. Nick, man, I cannot tell you how great it's been to catch up. I can't thank you enough for taking time out. I know I reach out to uh, a lot of potential guests out of the blue and go, dude, we got to we got to talk and this is going to be great. And it's always so wonderful when people are so happy to do this and and have a great chat. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed listening to the show as well. Uh, so, so to be a guest and to be able to share in those stories and share them with others, right? There's people I've known for years who, if they listen, they're probably going to learn things about me, about you, about some of the experiences we shared on the Drop Zone. And uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that. That's what it's all about, man. Dude, thank you so much. You have an amazing day. Big hug to the wife and kids. And hopefully you're back in the air soon. You as well. Thanks, Dean. Yeah. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, check out SummitParachuteSystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By Flyaway Indoor Skydiving, go to FlyawayTN.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD, head to PureSpectrumCBD.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the lunaticfringepodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available, hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.